Hey, I'm Sawyer Vandenhuvel, and this is From the Hill. From the Hill is actually what my last name, Vandenhuvel, means in the Dutch language. It's the name that was carried over by my ancestors from the Netherlands to the United States. From this name has come stories of people and places, both here in my home and from lands I have yet to step my feet in. With my name has come histories of struggle, resilience, and hope. And it is what I will attempt to bring into light with this podcast. Not just sharing my story, but the stories that shape both you and I in this world. Digging into our stories is hard work. It's like climbing up a hill. The journey is hard. Sometimes our feet get tired and our bodies become winded. But once you get to the top of the hill, it becomes breathtakingly clear just how far you've come and what you can now see. But then the next part comes when it's time to go back down the hill, back to your home, to your everyday life with your friends and family, and share what you have learned along the way. There's a line in scripture where the God of Israel speaks to the prophet Isaiah and says, Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And this is my hope for you and for the guests of my show, that something new will be created inside of you, a new thought, a new curiosity. And as we go through the wilderness, up the hill and back down, maybe crossing a river or two, know that you are not alone. So let's jump right in and meet today's guest, Julian Boudouin. Growing up in Alexandria, Louisiana, born to a family of public servants, Julian spent a lot of his childhood observing how positive changes can occur with simple acts of service to communities. He witnessed how addiction and poverty and lack of education hindered opportunities to succeed in his family and his city. Upon graduation from high school, Julian went on to attend Louisiana Tech University, where he studied biology. In 2006, Julian moved to Sioux Falls and fell in love with the city. Julian is married to his wife, Del Inca Budawan, and they have three beautiful daughters together. Julian and his wife are the proud owners of Swamp Daddy's Cajun Kitchen here in Sioux Falls and Do-Gooder's Pet Waste Removal. Julian has been a law enforcement officer for the state of South Dakota for over 10 years. He is the assistant director of the South Dakota African American History Museum, the vice president of Establishing Sustainable Connection, and is a proud member of the Face It Together Board of Directors. Julian and his family have dedicated themselves to public safety and public service. His integrity, commitment to community, and enthusiasm for unity and diversity is paralleled by few. Hey, Julian, how are you doing? I think the the last time I saw you in real life, you were out in the campaign trail for city council. Uh, so what have you been up to since? Uh, man, actually, <laughs> quite a bit of work, probably more work than uh, than I need to be doing. But 
Um, yeah, so since city council, I, I made it a point um, to continue on in advocacy work and, and uh, activism. And of course, my work in law enforcement. Um, and uh, we, we bought a new business. We had a new baby. So there's there's quite a bit that I've been doing since the city council race. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, thanks so much for joining. And I know you keep a a pretty busy and active life, uh, you know, raising that small family and uh, your two businesses there. Um, but also, yeah, state law enforcement officer. I can't imagine um, all the different schedules that you have to keep track of. So how do you keep going, and especially in these, you know, unusual COVID times and pandemic times? Uh, what keeps you going? Uh, you know, what keeps me going really is my family. Um, you know, I, I uh, I grew up in Louisiana, and I really didn't have much opportunity in the in the community that I grew up in. Um, and so, for me to be in a position that I'm in now to create opportunity, not just for my girls, but uh, for other young young people uh, and and kids around our community, is extremely important to me. Um, and I just want to be the example. So I just you know I keep working just to continue to be the example to those around me. Um, and so that, you know, that, that keeps me motivated, I guess. But, uh, I know you mentioned about schedules. Um, I have, I, I think I have about four, maybe five different calendars that I use for certain oh, wow. things. And, and so if it's not on one of my calendars, it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things I live by the calendar, man. <laughs> so structure and routine are important. Absolutely. Um, so I know you mentioned, you you know, you grew up in Louisiana and you came to South Dakota. Um, what, you know, kind of inspired you to to do public service and to get involved with, you know, law enforcement, but also your public work and advocacy and um, community involvement? So, you know, law enforcement was never really um, a goal of mine. Um, it just kind of was happened. It just kind of happened or it was circumstance. Um you know, my, my mom is a retired nurse and she uh, she was in nursing for 32 years. Uh, my father is a or before he passed away. He was a he was a teacher. He was an educator. Um, and so he did that for 35 years. Um, and so really service has has really been in my life since I could remember, you know, um, mm -hmm. so I, I've always wanted to be in a position to give back. Um, I, I actually, I went to school to be an orthodontist. I, like I said, you know, being in law enforcement was never really um, a thought for me. Um, however, um, when I moved up here to Sioux Falls and I, I moved up here in 2006, um, yeah. when I got up here, I started working at a bank. It was HSBC Bank. Uh, one of the things that I did want to do while I was in school was I wanted to be in the military. I never had the opportunity because I had asthma. Um, so I, I failed the physical to to go into the military. Um, and so it was always in the in the back of my mind, you know, how how can I still get into the military? I still wanted to go, go into the Army. Um, but while working at HSBC Bank, something happened. And um, it well, let me let me back up because I, I hate to say something happened. My um I have an aunt who would always get on me and, and this this kind of happens in the black community. You have that, you know, you have that one person in your family. And I mm -hmm. I bet it happens in every family, not just the black community, but for, for sure us. Um you have that one person in your family that will correct you on the spot every single time and will not allow you to make a mistake. And so we call her Aunt Ro uh, Aunt Rosie. 
And so my Aunt Rosie, man, every time you would say something happened or something told me to do, she would stop you in your tracks and she would always say, nope, that something is God and you call God by name. So hmm. God, God put something in my, in my path. Um, and so it was, it was actually a tragedy. Um, on Christmas Eve in 2009, there was a gentleman who came into the parking lot of the bank um, and he, he uh, killed his wife. And um, he committed suicide and uh, his two children were in the back seat when this happened. And so we were put on lockdown. The entire bank was put on lockdown. Oh, wow. And the, and the very first person to come in, um, HSBC Bank was right off the interstate there. But the very first person to come in in law enforcement um, to lock us down was someone who works currently with the organization that I work for. Um, he's also a state law enforcement officer. Come to find out, this individual um, was prior military as well. He served in the Marine Corps, and then he also served in the Army National Guards. Um, and so this this guy carried himself with such professionalism um, and so much class. Um, and he was so distinct and so honorable that I looked at him and said, I need to do that job. Um, wow. And so the, the very next day, I went and applied. Um, and then, you know, almost 11 years later, here I am. Wow. Yeah. I, I was living in Sioux Falls. I was in college, um, around that time. And, um, now that you bring that story up, I do, um, remember that making the news. Um, but I did not know that about you, uh, that you were there working at HSBC bank. Wow. Yeah. In the church, we like to call that our, you know, kind of our call story or call narrative of, you know, when, when did God speak to us and when did, uh, when did something in our life happen that, you know, kind of changed us and put us on a, on a different path. So clearly right. that, that moment, that, um, that tragedy, uh, certainly changed that moment for your life. Absolutely. It did. Um, so I'm wondering if you can maybe just talk a little bit about what it's like, uh, being in the law enforcement, uh, being an officer, I know what's your, day-to-day like? Um, you know, day-to-day for me is, is fairly tough. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm one of those individuals where I won't beat around the bush. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell it like it is as, as much as I possibly can. Um, and sometimes that gets me in trouble. Uh, it gets me in trouble <laughs> at work. It also gets me in trouble at home. Um, but, you know, I can't hide who I am and I, and I don't want to hide who I am. Um, you know, God created me for to, to be me. And so I go into every situation with the mindset, especially at work. Listen, you hired me for me. And so you have to accept me for exactly who I am. And I won't change that for anybody. Um, hmm. So so unfortunately, it does, you know, make it fairly tough. Um, just having some of the obstacles, race included, but uh, being a minority in a minority, the career of law enforcement is also uh, always frowned upon by minority groups. And so, you know, when you're in a career like that, you're all already a minority. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I'm one of only two uh, black uh, state law enforcement officers and soon to be the only state law enforcement officer that, that is black. The other guy is about to retire. Um, and, and so I'm like I said, I'm a minority of a minority. And so my thought process is different. Um, I'm not as conservative as a lot of those individuals. I'm a fairly liberal uh, thinker. 
um, I'm fairly accepting of everyone. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately that, that, um, put strains on relationships in, in work. Um, you know, one, just as an example, one of the things that, um, that, that I do often is I speak out against law enforcement whenever we as officers have done something wrong, inappropriate, illegal. Um, and I'm pretty vocal about that. Um, I, I have a strong belief that if you're wearing that uniform, you have a purpose to serve the community, not to serve each other. Um, and so I have to be able to call call out wrong when wrong is is done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I was able to speak. I was blessed to speak at the George Floyd movement uh, march here in Sioux Falls, and um, you know the the march um, ended very very peacefully. And then later that night, um, a separate incident happened um, to where we did have a small riot here in Sioux Falls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I was on the front lines of the march, but then that very night I was on the front lines of the riot as well. And um, the unfortunate part was behind the shield, nobody that was rioting knew who I was. Hmm. Um, so you were you were on the front lines of as a law enforcement officer then at that point? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, so so the, the position that I was put in was that I had to watch myself for the rioters, but I also had to watch my back for those that were in uniform that did not agree with me speaking out against our own, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that thin blue line or that code, um, that unspoken code is very strong in, in law enforcement. Um, and I tend to break that quite often. So, you know, that some of those things is what makes it difficult for me. But for me, it's all about ethics. It's all about morals. And if I can't once again, be exactly who I am, um, then I don't need that that job. And so I'm fortunate enough to be accepted by the organization to continue to do the work that I do. Can you talk a little bit more about, um, you kind of talked about a like, purpose and um, maybe some characteristics of what kind of makes like good law enforcement or a good officer. And maybe, you know, what kind of, you know, relationship should we be having with our police? For sure. Um, you know, I, I tend to think about um, what makes a good officer as being a well-rounded individual, not just a well-rounded officer. So, you know, in the position that I'm in, we make a lot of traffic stops. We're responsible for preventing crashes. We're responsible for riding the majority of the crashes on interstates and highways in the state. Um, and then we do have uh, efforts of um, uh, removing drugs off the road as well. But for me, you know, that just makes you a good officer. It doesn't make you a good uh, public servant. And so every time I put the uniform on, I, I tell myself, uh, today, you have to be more than just an officer. You have to go out and you have to serve the public. Hmm. Um, and so what are you doing to go above and beyond in these situations um, without thinking twice? That, that's really important is what are you doing to go above and beyond without giving anything a second thought to make sure that the public has the best service possible. Um, and so for me, having a well-rounded individual in the uniform, as soon as you have a better person, it makes you a better professional. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to see more people involved in the community. Um, I love to see uh, more people involved in their churches. Um, uh, you know, I, I actually used to go to church in uniform um, every Sunday. Um, hmm. some, some of my thought processes have changed uh, with church and with religion. Um, and so I've bounced around from church to church. I'm kind of 
in limbo with that right now. But, um, you know, it's, it's still in all, though, whatever, whatever makes you, you, I think you have to be that person in uniform. Um, and so bring your passions to the uniform, bring your passions to the organization, but then also don't allow those passions to stifle your growth in the community. Yeah, I love that. I kind of, you know, it struck me when you're talking about uh, the two distinctions, like being a good officer could mean, you know, making arrests or getting drugs off the street. But then you make this clear distinction about being a public servant and a active community uh, service um, component to your job. And I think that's, that's really touching and moving. Yeah, for sure. You know, there, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of individuals who wear the uniform that um, we call them adrenaline junkies. You know, they want to go out, they want to get in pursuits. uh, They want to get into high stress situations. Um, And, and normally it takes, Normally, those are younger individuals who are just, you know, kind of getting into the career. It, and it takes three or four, maybe even five years to kind of get that adrenaline out. But once you're settled in, you start to see the purpose of what you're doing. Um, and I personally personally would like to see guys start off with that purpose um, versus waiting five years. Because if you notice, a lot of guys that make the mistakes are in that three to five year range. And once they start making small mistakes, then you lose them out of uniform, even though they still have a good heart, you lose them out of uniform and therefore you've lost a good public servant because you didn't hire them or you didn't really train them the right way. Um, Hmm. And so I'd really like to see individuals come into whatever organization it is. I I like to see them wear the uniform with pride and distinction, uh, number one, but wear it with the purpose to serve the community first. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about uh, January 6, 2021, this month, um, just a few weeks ago. Um, you know, what was what was going on through your head as you saw, you know, Trump supporters, rioters breach the, the Capitol steps and breach our United States Capitol? What was what was going on for you that day? Well, <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind was where are the Capitol Police? Um mm. And and uh, so I, I knew that there were several thousand Capitol Police that um, that are staffed. Right. Um, and I know in those high stress situations, there's a minimum percentage, especially if you know something may happen, which in this case they did. They knew something may, you know, may occur. Um, then you staff appropriately. And there's a minimum percentage of those officers that you have to have on duty. Uh, for, for example, on a Friday or a Saturday, um, there's a lot of travel in the area of Sioux Falls, in the metro area of Sioux Falls. And uh, there's a minimum percentage of individuals you want on the interstate because the level of travel is going to be higher. The number of vehicles traveling the road is going to be higher. Mm-hmm. You know this to be true, so you plan ahead. Um, it's no different at the Capitol. You know that there's a, there's a threat to the Capitol. You know that there's a threat to the legislators, and your main purpose is to protect that building and, and to protect the people inside of the building. Um, and so if you know this to be true, then you have to be able to staff appropriately. You have to be ready for that. And so my, my, first, my first thing was, you know, number one, why were, were they not staffed appropriately? But number two, and maybe you can say this is 1A and 1B, is mm-hmm. why were some of the officers that were staffed there um, complicit in some of the things that were going on. 
why was there um, such an ease of removal for of the barricades? Um, you know, the the uh, black officer that um, is now um, being lauded for his heroic actions of, of leading the mob away from the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my first my first thought even about that was why was he at the door by himself? Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you know a mob is yeah. coming, you're not going to put any anyone at the door by themselves. Um, and so his his quick thinking and his his actions are definitely heroic, um, especially because he was by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's a point that's that's oftentimes missed. If you're in those high stress situations, you always have a battle buddy with you. Um, and so they yes, they were unprepared. Um, they weren't ready. But I believe it goes, uh, you know, even higher than some of the police officers that were complicit. And I'm glad to see the two sergeant at arms step down. I'm glad to see the director of the Capitol Police step down um, because I believe those individuals were also complicit in what happened that day. Yeah. Yeah, that's the image, you know, you brought up Eugene Goodman. That's the image that kind of sticks out in my mind, uh, his heroicism um, that day. But then I was like, where's his backup? And here he is, also a black man, confronting an angry white mob of pure racists, you know, in my opinion, like that was true evils of racism on that day and white supremacy. Um, so yeah, I, I keep pondering like what, where was the, where was the accountability and, um, you know, the planning and preparation. And, you know, I just think, you know, as the weeks continue on, we'll, We'll probably find out more um, of what happened that day. For sure. You know, with uh, with Officer Goodman, the reason why that really hit home to me in particular is because, um, and, and I'm sorry, I saw your mug just now. I like the sticker on your mug. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the reason why that, that stuck out to me in particular was because I've been in certain situations to where I've needed backup of call for backup and backup didn't show up. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, you can see him on his mic radioing and it's hard to tell what he is trying to communicate. He may be trying to say, Hey, I'm coming in, in this direction. I need you to, you know, meet me wherever in the, in the corridor or, or wherever, but he could also be saying, I need you down here at the door with me now. Um, mm-hmm. And I would imagine if you see a thousand people in front of you, you would probably be saying, get down here now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been in, as I said, certain situations to where I've been on a traffic stop and I've encountered um, several individuals ready to go toe to toe on the side of the road. Um, and these individuals have known to be dangerous. Um, and, and when you call on the radio for backup, you expect backup to show up. Um, and so not only didn't backup show, or not only did backup not show up, no one even responded. No one even answered um, to say that they would be on their way. Um, and so I know the feeling of being alone as a black hmm. officer in those high tense and high stress situations. Um, and so for me, it was really heavy on my heart because I, I felt his fear, mm-hmm. I felt his pain. Um, I felt his I felt all of the emotions that he had going on. Uh, which makes his actions even more heroic to me. Wow. I mean, do you think, you know, from your past experience um, in a situation like that, like, was it because of the color of his skin? 
um, that he wasn't getting the the support or people not answering or what, what do you think was going on there? You know, that's hard to say. Um, simply because I don't know his history with the organization. I don't know his history with his coworkers. Um, you know, I, I don't know if he is one similar to me to speak out against certain issues. Uh, but here's what I will say is after this situation happened, there were several black Capitol police officers who have come out and spoken against their white counterparts or their white coworkers to say, you know, they did this and it felt like it was against me because I was black or it felt like um, they were on the side of the, uh, you know, the insurrectionists versus uh, on, on the side of, of law enforcement. Um, and so sometimes, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know because you don't know a person's heart, um, but you know your heart and you know what you feel. Um, and so, you know, once again, I've, I've been there, I've shared those emotions. Um, and so I can't, yeah, I, I'm not willing to call anyone um, a racist unless they show me that they're a racist. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, if I don't know them, I won't call them a racist. But as soon as you show me <laughs> that you are, then that's exactly what you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and the unfortunate part is, the you know this entire movement, if you will, was led by the racist in chief, was which in my opinion uh, was Donald Trump. He is mm-hmm. he is the son of a Klansman. Um, you know his actions spoke very clearly to the black community, um, even prior to his presidency. Um, you know, his actions were were very racist, and so we saw him for exactly who he was. And the unfortunate part is law enforcement, most law enforcement officers. Are, you know, are are white men, um, and those individuals were also very strong supporters of Donald Trump. Um, and so, you know, you put two and two together, you can imagine that there are some white supremacists that are in law enforcement that you have to weed out, that you have to call out mm-hmm. um, for for exactly who they are. Um, and so, yeah, leave, leaving him alone was that was that intentional? Maybe not, but there definitely was probably an unconscious bias there um, that that prevented them from standing by his side. Right. So when you, um, you know, when you experience that kind of trauma or, you know, a high intensity moment, um, such as Eugene Goodman or, um, you know, and other past experiences that you've been in, like, how do you, how do you heal from that trauma? Like that carries with you, but like, how do you, kind of heal from there and go from that? Um, you know, honestly, I don't know if you do. Um, because you have to be able to move on to the next experience. Mm -hmm. Um, because the next person you come in contact with may be the nicest person in the world and you have to be able to turn it off from being, um, you know, on guard versus a threat to talking to maybe a 90 year old lady who, was maybe speeding by five miles an hour over, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or maybe even driving too slow for the speed limit and causing, um, cars to swerve around. So you you really have to be able to put that in the back of your mind very, very quickly in a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily give you time to heal. Um, it honestly, most of us, um, who have been in those high stress situations, who have, you know, maybe have had to um, 
use some hand-to-hand type uh, combat, but never use the tools around our belt. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us actually have um, nightmares. Uh, I'm I'm one of those individuals. Once a week, you know, there's there's definitely uh, nightmares of of pulling out your weapon and shooting someone because you've never done it before. There's mm-hmm. a fear. There's a fear of taking someone's life if you've never done it. Um, but you know that you are in a position and you know that you have the power to do so. That's not an easy choice for anybody. Um, and, and so, you know, even when it is done and it is a mistake by certain officers, I sympathize with some of those individuals uh, because I have the same fear that I'm that I'm certain they have had. I've had the same nightmares that I'm certain that they have had. Um, and so it's just something that, you know, unless you're e- either in the military or in law enforcement, I'm not sure you will fully understand. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm just an outsider, you know, looking in. Um, but what I've been studying about too is, um, you know, trauma specifically in the police department um, and what causes an, an officer to, to fire unwillingly, you know, without knowing, you know, like sometimes the defense is like, well, I feared for my life. Well, it's that, that element of fear. And, you know, I think there's something that, triggers in the brain um you know they call it like the lizard brain um where that fight or flight response happens and you know i'm just wondering you know and it's as you're talking it's kind of becoming more clear to me of how much um trauma is that's still out there and maybe not being able to be healed in certain ways because you're you're on duty, you're on call and you gotta, you gotta continue your, your call and your profession as a, as a law enforcement officer. Absolutely. But you know, um, life experience has quite a bit to do with the ability to put aside those, um, traumatic events fairly quickly. Um, you know, there is a higher level of black individuals who live in poverty and not just black, but this, you know, people of color in general, there's a higher level of, of us who live in poverty when we're growing up. Um, there, there's a higher level of us that uh, engage in um, uh, drug activity. Uh, there's a higher level of us that suffer from addictions um, than, than any other community. And so with, with that, we have had to overcome traumatic events our entire lives. And so when we get into certain situations that may be traumatic for one person, it's not as bad for us. Um, so we're able to put aside those uh, those biases, if you will, or those fears uh, fairly quickly. Um, however, when you don't have that experience, um, then you it, it's very difficult for you to put, put those traumatic events to the side. And in particular, when you don't have experiences with communities of color, uh, mm-hmm. because those communities of color... Um, you know, they, we have, we all have different thought processes. We all have different life experiences. We all come from different communities. Um, and not all of us think the same. Um, and we definitely don't think like most white men. Um, and so in the, the career of law enforcement, when you have the majority of those in uniform being white males who don't have a level of understanding of any community of color and maybe, I, I know in uh, in South Dakota for sure. Um, <laughs> most of them have never uh, been friends with anyone of color, um, 
they've never really sat down and had a conversation with anyone of color until they got into law enforcement or, hmm. or until they went to college. And so you're talking 18, 19 years of a lack of experience, a lack of knowledge uh, before they even talked to someone that had true trauma uh, in, in their lives. And so they just don't know how to deal with it. That, and for me, that's one of the reasons why I see such a quick reaction uh, is because they do have a fear of the unknown. And mm-hmm. if they don't if they don't know who we are, uh, it's very easy for them um, to have that um, that unconscious response of a trigger pool. Yeah. Um, so before this, this interview, before we sat down, I, you know, was just kind of asking you some kind of introductory questions, but one of the things that I was curious about was, you know, what, what things out there kind of give you inspiration or ground you as you continue throughout this work. And one of the things you mentioned was the poem, Still I Rise by Maya Angelou. And I'm wondering if it's okay if I read just a quick stanza from that, from that poem. Absolutely. So she writes, Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Um, so as I was reading the full poem, um, I couldn't help but, you know, think about you in the line of duty and, and answering the call uh, to serve and protect, you know, your communities that you're entrusted with each and every day. Um, what do those words mean for you? Yeah, honestly, it means everything to me, man. Um, be, because, the you know, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier. But the racism that we deal with internally while in uniform and then also having to go and maybe make an arrest uh, of someone who (laughs) doesn't like you. Um, And so the racism you have to deal with with those that you are uh, dealing with on the road every day. Um, And then, of course, the racism that we have to deal with simply out of uniform um, every day. Um, Those those are the terrors and the fear like she speaks of in the, in the, in the poem, those are the tears and the fears that I have to put aside in order to better serve my community. Hmm. Um, and that goes back to kind of what I said earlier about the ability to put aside fear, to do the job the right way, to not have that unconscious trigger pull. That's why experience or life experience is so important when you talk about public service while in uniform and having the power to take someone's life. Um, we literally, every time I come in contact with a person, I have the ability to take their life. And that is, yeah, that's probably the most powerful thing that I could, that I could think of. You hold someone's life in your hands, literally. Um, and so being, being able to put aside those fears and the terror of someone else not liking me just because of my skin color, um, allows me to continue to rise in, in what I do continue you know that that also gives me the motivation to continue to serve the community outside of the uniform um but it also tells me that when i wake up the next morning it's going to be a better day Hmm. um and 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 for that um the, the the better days ahead is how i look back on on our ancestors 
and what they've had to go through, what the slaves had to go through, um, because there's nothing compared to the dramatic events that I've uh, explained to you today. My life is nothing compared to what the slaves had to go through. It's nothing compared to what my grandmother had to go through in the Great Depression. It's nothing compared to what my mom had to experience during segregation and being escorted to school by the National Guard. Um, you know, the racism that we see now is quite a bit different because of the fight of our ancestors. Um, and so every morning when I wake up, I have a clear understanding that each day has to be better because my ancestors had the same mindset. And so for me, that poem, uh, you know, telling me that there's so much that I will have to overcome, right? Not just my own experiences, but I have to overcome um, the experiences of everyone else as well. Um, but no matter what those experiences are, I will continue to rise. And not just me, my community as a whole will continue to rise. Wow. Uh Wow, that's that's moving uh, to me, and it's almost getting it's almost getting some tears over here just <laughs> listening to you. It's just so powerful, and I just can't like thank you enough for anyone really that you know puts their life on the line um, to protect us and to um, you know put their own um, feelings aside or things aside um, because they're, they're called to something greater than themselves. And um, I just can't, you know, appreciate you enough uh, for what you, for what you do each and every day. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. So last question. Um, so I want you to, you know, imagine that while we were talking, you know, I mentioned earlier about going up a hill. Um, so finally we're getting to the top of the hill. What do you see and, you know, what gives you hope? Um, it, you know, maybe a better, a better response for me would be, what do I not see? Hmm. Um, and and I, I'm a realist as well. You know, I understand that we always have to work towards perfection, but I, I don't see perfection happening. I don't see unity happening. Because um, and, you know, with the new presidential election, I, I understand President Biden is is really focused right now on uniting our country as he should be. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because we are we are as divisive now as as we have almost ever been. Um, so we definitely need to be focused on on unity and, and moving towards a common goal. Um, but for us in the black community and maybe me in particular, I don't want to speak for the entire community when I say this. Um, but for those who stormed our Capitol building, uh, for those who carried the Confederate flag in that building, uh, for those who continue to perpetrate racism and bigotry um, and sexism, um, you know, I, I don't want to unite with them. I don't I don't want to. I, I don't have the will to mm -hmm. unite with those individuals. Um, I don't think that that makes us a better union. I don't think that that makes us a better country to unite with those individuals. What I do want is a better level of understanding of those individuals. But more than that, I want them to understand me. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I see as I cross that hill is maybe having uh, a level of understanding of each other that we have never had before. Um, and, and so... You know, we always say that America is the melting pot. Uh, 
but I really like to look at America as a beautiful quilt. Hmm. Because we don't need to melt into each other's. We don't need to conform into each other's thought processes. We need to have our own thought processes. You know, we we need to embrace our own cultures. Um, and, and we need to make sure that we understand those cultures. So then when we do unite on one front, when we do, um, uh, I guess the, uh, the analogy that I want to use is when we are stitched together, hmm. um, we are as beautiful as a quilt. Um, and so for me, that is more powerful than, than, you know, the, the term unity. I want to be different. I want you to be different because that's what makes us great. Mm-hmm. Amen. Wow. That's good. <laughs> um, well, thank you uh, for this time. And thanks for coming on this, this show with me and for talking a little bit more about this stuff. And it's, you know, it's difficult, but I think, you know, for me as a white person and, you know, talking with my white friends, like this is our own kind of work that we need to go through and like um we need to to start treating each other more with with dignity and respect and fairness um and looking at all the different you know patchworks that unite us together and stitch us together as you said um i think that's a beautiful way to to look at our country
York Times bestseller book, My Grandmother's Hands, author and social worker Resma Menekam writes about the soul nerve as being the unifying organ of the entire nervous system. You might also call us the vagus nerve or the wandering nerve, but I agree with Menekam that calling this nerve the soul nerve is a much more descriptive term for the way this nerve acts in our body. This nerve communicates through vibes and sensations and goes all throughout our gut, throat, lungs, stomach, and heart. But what is so interesting, Resma says, about the soul nerve is that it does not connect to our thinking brain, but only to our brainstem, or what we often call our lizard brain. This is the part of the brain that controls our fight, flee, or freeze responses. As you heard in our conversation with Julian, our law enforcement officers are often faced with critical moments in the line of duty where they need to make decisions in the matter of milliseconds. The same is also true for those of us with white bodies when we encounter a black body. An emotional response is triggered. Our soul nerve receives from the lizard brain to fight, flee, or freeze, or as Resma describes that the soul nerve can do the exact opposite by spreading the message of, it's okay, you're safe right now, and you can relax. I want us to dig deeper into feeling our soul nerve with one of his practices outlined in his book. I think once we can be in tune with our soul nerve, future encounters with white bodies and black bodies or police bodies with black bodies might stand a better chance of going home that night and being treated with the dignity and respect they deserve as human. By training our soul nerve, we can teach how to soothe our bodies in high-stress situations and ground us to avoid negative fight, flee, or freeze responses. A simple technique is humming. So let's try it. Find a comfortable spot and focus your attention on the center of your belly, right behind your navel. Breathe in and out, deeply and slowly for a few times. Feel your belly pull the air all the way down into it. Do this for a few times, and then on the fourth or fifth exhalation, hum a low, even tone. You can repeat this a few times just by inhaling naturally and varying the pitch on each new exhalation. Once you do this two or three minutes, stop and notice what your body experiences after. What has changed from before you started humming? What stayed the same? What does your body want to do now? Does it want to move? Hum some more? Run and hide? Fight? Just notice. Don't do anything else other than whatever your body is experiencing right now. I know this is a simple practice, but it works. An alternative would be to pick a song with a familiar but simple melody that feels comforting to your body.
I want to thank you all for joining me today from the Hill. I want to say thank you, especially to my guest, Julian Boudouin, for taking the time to go on this journey with me. Now, friends, it's time to go back down the hill. We'll see you next time. From the Hill is written and produced by me, Sawyer Vandenhuvel. The music today is Wildland by Sounds Like Sander. The song Hewler that you heard earlier was written and composed by Larry Olson of Dakota Road and performed by Kevin Stilson and Mara Stilson. Hey.